Welcome to The Art of Medicine, the program that explores the arts, business, and clinical aspects of the practice of medicine. I'm Dr. Andrew Wilner, and today my guest is Dennis Lieber. Welcome, Dennis. Oh, glad to be here. Thanks. So, Dennis, your title is Chief Information Security Officer. Is that right? Chief That's Information correct. Security Officer at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, where, where I'm an associate professor. And today we're going to talk about the type of security that you do, which isn't a bodyguard security. We're going to talk about cybersecurity. And I think, you know, these days everybody has a computer and everybody has to deal with passwords and cybersecurity from, you know, having your password hacked to um, people getting into your accounts and protecting them. And, you know, how much of this is real, a real problem? And then I was wondering, you know, on an institutional level, you have the responsibility of keeping the institution safe. I want to talk about that. And I also want to talk a little bit about hospitals because I read that hospitals are kind of an easy target because they have a lot of information about, they don't have their bank accounts, but they've got social security numbers and birthdays and addresses. And that that's kind of uh, an easy target for people that are interested in this sort of thing. And I remember about it's got to go back at least 15 years. I happened to meet in passing an FBI agent, nothing I did, but he had been assigned to the president. And I, you know, I was asking him about, you know, guns and defense. He didn't do any of that. He was all into cybersecurity. And this was when the computers were sort of becoming new. He said, this is really where the threats are. So, before we get into the details, I want you to tell me what's your background and how did you get yourself into this position? Sure. So the, the quick down and dirty. Uh, out of high school, I wasn't as motivated as I was now, and I went into the Marine Corps instead of college. Uh, so well, that sounds like a they, lot of motivation to me. Uh, yeah. Well, they motivate you, that's for sure. <laughs> they set the course of the rest of my life, and I needed that. Um, when I left the Marine Corps after four years of active duty, I joined the uh, Louisville Police Department in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and I was a law enforcement officer for about 14 years. And I, I became, the, I wouldn't really say disheartened is the right word, but I became disheartened with that career. I noticed a, a lot of other officers that had trained me when I was a young rookie, when they retired, they went and became a police officer somewhere else. And I was like, sure to God, I'm capable of more than being in law enforcement for 20 years and then going back to law enforcement. Um, so I started talking to some friends and mentors and decided that it was time for me to go to college and had a friend that worked at UPS, which they have a big hub in Louisville. And be, he said, come work for me. And I, I had some experience in logistics. So they hired me as a production manager and I started using the UPS college fund and my military GI bills. And I started going to college. Uh, so several years and several degrees later, uh, I'm now about to complete my PhD. I'm scheduled to complete it in April of 2021. Uh, I've got an associate's, a bachelor's and a master's. But when I was going through the programs, you know, I was like, what, what do I want to focus my career on? I still had that desire to serve. I still had that desire to protect people. And my loving wife said, hey, you like computers, you like security, why don't you do that cybersecurity thing? Because I had a few options listed. And she was like, cybersecurity has got your name all over it. And uh, 
that's where I went. Uh, went straight into Delft head first in cybersecurity. Got my bachelor's of science in it. Got my master's in information systems and even my PhDs in cybersecurity. Um, the Army, I had joined the Army Reserve after some time during all this going on. And during the second Gulf War, the Army, Army called me back to active duty. So I did four years of active combat duty with the Marine Corps and then four years with the Army um, during, during the war. And the, I, was a, I had those degrees and the commander of the unit was like, hey, you can be our computer guy, basically. It's the S6 communications, but it's computers. And I just took advantage of that. So while I was finishing my degrees, every little bit of training that the Army wanted to give me around cybersecurity and, and information technology and, and pay for any certifications, I would just stick out one hand when they put something in it and I was putting it in my pocket, I stuck out the other hand and let them put something else in it. So uh, I came out of the Army and was instantly hired uh, at an auto manufacturing company to do IT and cybersecurity and it just ran from there. So all my jobs and careers have progressively grown with more responsibility and building several, I've built about three or four cybersecurity programs from the ground up, which led me progressively to now a C-suite executive leader of cybersecurity. Now the University of Tennessee for Health Science Center, let, let's put this in perspective. So an idea of the scope of your responsibility. So how many computers are, are under you that you have to be responsible for? Um, you know, I've, it's been a while since the last count, and there's some unknowns out there, but tens of thousands. Tens so of thousands. Easily. So I would put it in perspective, too. You know, we have the students, and we have the computers that they use, and they bring themselves to access our networks, right? We have all our, our professors and our, our faculty, right? And then we have our operations, but we also have our research facilities, and then we have our clinics and our medical facilities. So it's not just computers, but we have such a, a wide uh, plethora of different needs and, and different specialities, uh, just like our, uh, you know, simulation, the surgery simulation center, we have a whole lot of internet of things connected over there. So um, I have, I have every imaginable possible technology solution that needs protected here at our university. Well, we, we have a limited amount of time, and I'm just going to start with a personal question, and, and I think many people will relate to this, changing passwords. I, I have never understood the logic of this. In other words, if, if your password is still working and it's safe, what is the logic to change it since it was already safe? I mean, if someone's broken into it, you, you know what I mean? I mean... But I want to, but then I got this email from UT and it says, we will give you a permanent password that you never have to change. And I said, that's what I want. So, so tell me how much does it make any sense, first of all, to change your password when it's working fine and nobody's hacked it, because then you're going to have a new one that's available. And that's what, you know, the amount of time that everybody spends changing passwords. Every time I change my password, there's 10, 10 things that don't work anymore. And it takes three days for them to all catch up for until the next 90 days. So a lot of loss of productivity uh, nationwide. So give us some insight. So there's, there's really two schools of thought, right? So there's the cybersecurity best practices where it says, hey, it's good to change your password every so often. And it's kind of the, like keeping the, the nefarious actors guessing. Um, but to your point too, if it's not hacked, then it's not at risk. 
but one of the risks that a lot of people that don't take in consideration is where else do you use that password? So even though the password that you're using for the university may not have been compromised, if you use that password or some variation of that password somewhere else and it was compromised, it makes the current password easily hacked. Um, I, for one, do buy into, if it ain't hacked, don't change it. But it also has to be complex enough where it takes years for these automated tools that nefarious actors use now to hack passwords. There's things called brute force attacks, there's rainbow tables. And what happens is as these breaches occur across not just our nation, but across the globe, these passwords that are harvested are sold, bought, traded on the dark net and the, you know, the dark web as we hear, and they put in what's in called rainbow tables. And you can buy these rainbow tables and then you have these automated kind of AI motivated tools that are set in motion to attack a specific user or a, a like our university. And it takes these variations and it just keeps trying passwords and passwords and passwords. So even though your password, you know, password one, two, three, which not a good password, but password one, two, three is your password and someone else had a password, password one, four, five, it now starts to learn how, let's try these different variations and it makes the cracking of passwords easier. So it's kind of like that running, you know, the running passwords that are consistently changing are like the little RSA keys that some folks claim for changes. So it makes a level of difficulty harder. So there is benefit to changing your passwords often. If you don't change your passwords, the way to mitigate that risk is you use a different password for every single account that you have. And we know most of us in the age of the internet, we have hundreds of accounts, right? Your banking, your, your electric bill, your, right? I can make a, we could talk for the whole hour of listing those, right? Um, but there, there's, that's why there's two strains of thoughts. There are benefits of changing your passwords, but there are the challenges that come with having to change your passwords. But what we've done at the university, we've tried to put complexities and there's some websites out there. And I would never say put your password in there, but you can put a similar password in there. And there's charts that show, you know, if you have 13 characters and you have letters and symbols and numbers and capitals, it'll take a hacker or one of these automated programs 1,000 years to crack your password. So we kind of balancing that where, okay, we've put in the parameters where it says it would take an automated tool until quantum computing takes off. And we know we're close to that. Even our researchers want that, but you know, it'll take a standard computer a thousand years to crack your password. But it also doesn't talk about how you know, has a similar password or that password been cracked somewhere else and now it's in this table that hackers are using to do these brute force attacks and breach and, and crack passwords. So yes, if we're gonna do it, we gotta make it difficult and it's just risk mitigation, just like treatment of patients, right? What's our risk, what's our trade-off and how do we mitigate those? Now for all those potential hackers out there, I have 55 pages of passwords and they're all different and they're all in a document that's password protected. So just that's the best I can do. So look elsewhere, look elsewhere for if you want to hack a, a password. And you know, there's, there's password managers. Uh, the university uses LastPass uh, and there's, a, there's numerous tools out there. It's, it's not, I, I, I wasn't involved in why we selected that tool, but it seems to work well, but you know, a password manager helps. 
and it does, you know, there's a level of protection. Everything can be hacked. So even when you're using a password manager, like you said, you've got a password protected to make it difficult. So, because you think about that, they hacked that when they got all your passwords. So let's move on to something I think everyone can relate to is cost. So what is the line item in the UT budget for cybersecurity? So uh, as you know, and, and the audience may not know, you know, Dan Harder is our CIO and he's been here about a year and he's implementing a lot of change and being innovative. Uh, this is about trying to count. This is my seventh month with the university. So he and I are still getting a really good hand around the budget. I'm not saying that it was wrong or not done before, but we're just getting it into where we need to be and the way we do things between the collaboration of us. Typically across the industry, you'll find anywhere about 20% of the IT budget facilitated for cybersecurity. That, that's about okay. a pretty average. Um, I'll get on the soapbox for a minute. I'm an advocate in, in the industry's moving towards where cybersecurity and IT should not be one organization or under it, but it is. And fortunately, Dan and I work well together. It's a good partnership. So it's not, it doesn't pose the challenges between my office and his office that it does in other organizations. But the budget's still tied to the one group, right? Um, and I would say, fairly say that the budget for cybersecurity here is equivalent to industry standard for our university. But I'm trying to get an idea. Suppose, okay, I want to, I'm going to open up a 300 bed hospital. Yes. private hospital down the road and we're going to have emr everybody's going to have a computer some of them are going to be professors here and there and come and go uh how much do i have to budget for cybersecurity? what's that well, how many know, employees do i need can one right. guy do it do i need a hundred guys what, what what is my scope here so one person would definitely not be enough a hundred folks may or may not be enough Right. May or may not. So we're already yeah. into uh, maybe triple digits of people whose only purpose is to protect the organization. Sure. And, and a lot of that ties into, you know, where, where I would start with a new 300 bed hospital. One, we don't recreate the will. So there's some industry standards out there like that 20% of budget. There's some standard cybersecurity practices that are foundational that you put in place. And, you know, it's like triage in the patient. There's a few things that you do every time a patient comes in, regardless of what their illness is. So cybersecurity is similar to that. So there's, there's good cyber hygiene, there's endpoint protection, there's you know, email and spam protection. There's some foundational items that you can do uh, very affordable. Some items, you know, even kind of free by the way you configure your systems and your policies and procedures. But you really have to look at two things, your people processes and technology and your technical and administrative controls. And that's where it would get very involved. We would sit down and go, okay, these are the, the business functions. These are the core processes and procedures that our hospital are gonna do and offer. These are the technologies that our hospital desires to Im implement and use and utilize at the hospital to treat our patients. Then we have to look at the risk to those technologies. And a simple one that most people understand is like email, right? So we are going to use email and we're gonna use Office 365. Then we take the time to have the discussion with the, you know, you as the, you're the owner of the hospital. So you, it's, it's paramount that you're in this discussion, but okay, what are the risks to the email and using email? Are we going to allow HIPAA be emailed back and forth? 
are we going to require username and passwords? And I'm just making up some scenarios. Then once we identify those risks, we apply the financial impacts of those risks. A lot of, there's a lot of recent studies that are kept up to date. Uh, I think right now, and this is from memory, but it's about $1.4 million a year that a company faces in uh, uh, costs due to email breaches and misconfigurations. I think the average cost last year for 2019 for a business, when you take in uh, malware and phishing attempts, it was like $13 million a year. So now we have a quantifiable number to go, hey, it's costing our company about $13 million a year in cybersecurity incidents. So then we look at what our risk mitigation factors are and the tools that we need and the people that are skilled to run those tools and meet those tools. And it's like, you know, it's just like insurance. We wouldn't spend $500,000 to protect a $500 item, right? I've heard people say, you don't build a $500 fence for a $5 horse. I mean, um, so you have those conversations and you and it's looked at from the business functionality and the core business function of what are we spending to protect our assets? But I'm sure you use the medical analogy in medicine, you know, prevention is always a lot cheaper than trying to fix something that's already happened. So I'm sure that's true in cybersecurity as well, trying to go after, a, you know, a virus in the, in the computer system must be a nightmare. Absolutely. So it's, it's hard to really put a number on it because it's situational, like treating a patient, right? I mean, depending on what the illness is, is that it uh, dictates the treatment. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to ask you a question now that you're going to like. All right. Okay. So what can users do to help you? That is a great question. And I appreciate that question. So one is staying aware, um, taking cybersecurity uh, seriously and understanding that cybersecurity, even though we have myself and a whole cybersecurity office dedicated to protecting cybersecurity is still everyone's responsibility. There's data owners and system owners. So if I set up a research uh, technology solution for you tomorrow, that's your system, right? The data that you manipulate in research, that's your data. So understanding your data, understanding the importance of your data, if there's any regulations around your data is paramount that you understand that. And then working with the security office to go, hey, I, I've got this data, it's intellectual property. If someone stole it, it would be detrimental to the world and we need to protect it. And then we are able to sit down and have those conversations about, okay, well, here's what it costs, here's what we need to do, here's the risk and the, and the risk mitigations to it. So just taking it serious, uh, don't be complacent. There's a lot of folks that make assumptions that I'm on my computer and it's safe, and that's not always true. I mean, there's understanding just some of the foundational risk, like keeping your computers up to date, You know, not clicking those links, those annual security awareness training classes that we give every year and so often um, those those items that are listed in there and those highlighted you know we, we apply a lot of behavioral analytics and a lot of threat to it so we look over the last year and go what were some of the top threats that we faced or the risk that we faced and then we apply those in the next year's training because those were the biggest risks that were caused injury to us uh, and just keeping that awareness mindset okay that, that's great i got one more question and that's about email I read in the fine print, you know, the hospital, you know, that your email doesn't really belong to you and that any time it could, the account could be closed. So when I'm sending in a UT email, right? And uh, how, because 
what happens with security is it compromises your privacy. So there's a balance there also. So how private are my emails? Can my emails be read by other people, for example? Short answer, yes. So a little more definitely detail. keep that in mind. <laughs> so, but but in, in more detail, you know, working at any corporation, you're the assets of the corporation belong to the corporation or the business. Right. So the use of the email is UTHC email and it should be used mainly for business purposes. And there's also the, the reason why that happens because it's, it's company property, right? You're using company property. It's like the roads we drive on. We don't own the roads. It's a privilege to use it and it helps us get around and it's convenient. So email is the same concept. Email is there for you to conduct business on behalf of the UTHC business. Those, these emails are open to the Freedom of Information Act because we're a state school. So there's state law that says, hey, anybody at any time can submit a, a, a FOA request and depending on a few rules and laws, you know, there is some restrictions and it, we could get into detail, but basically they can have your emails and read them uh, just like our documents. Uh, the university is subject to audits because of regulatory compliances like HIPAA and, you know, FERPA. We have certain rules and regulations we're reliant to that makes these things subject to audit and uh, evidence and investigations. And just for the insider threat alone, and this is where we still balance the privacy. So we're not going to obscurely go into your emails and just look because we're curious one day. You know, th think about like in our medical practices, you know, once you... Are, are treating the patient, you can't go back and look at their record just because you want to. It's only when you're treating the patient or they're in front of you, right? Same for like your staff and your, your nurses can't go, oh, my cousin was in here last week. I'm just going to pull up the EHR and look, right? That's it, it not, there's that need to know and in line with your business. So same thing with my security office in the university. We're not just sitting down with Dr. Brown and go, okay, today, Dr. Wilner, right? No, it's going to have to be something that prompts that. There's an investigation, there's a request. Uh, it may be, we, we felt that maybe someone took over your account and sending spam and you weren't aware of it and we just need to look type of thing. So yes, it's university property. Yes, we can look, but there is a balance between privacy and a need to know and the need to do that. And you think about how many emails you send a day and I forget the exact number, but we probably have like four to 5,000 total folks on faculty and staff in the university. There's, there's just no way we could look at all of them. Dennis, this, this has been fantastic. Uh, well, first of all, I think I've done you a favor. I, we've uh, provided information to everyone how they can help with cybersecurity. And I think this last bit of discussion, you're gonna see an enormous drop off of uh, emails and a far less uh, things to screen, at least over the next few weeks until people get complacent again. And sure. I see where your law enforcement uh, background, you know, which is pretty deep. I think your wife was right. You know, it yeah. really evolved uh, naturally into uh, cybersecurity you know, which, which we all have to, uh, it's a big challenge. So I want to thank you for being on the program. It was instructive. It was fun. And is there anything else you'd like to add about just things that people should know or? Uh, sure. You know, one, again, I appreciate you having me on and enjoyed it uh, uh, anytime. And, you know, as the chief information security officer for the university, that's what I'm here for. I'm here for the university. 
So anytime you have those questions, uh, I have a, a deep knowledge and experience of regulatory and compliance within cybersecurity as well. I'm also the HIPAA security officer uh, and, and I'm here for the university. So never hesitate to reach out, call me, email me um, with your questions, your concerns, how we can help. Because the main thing about cybersecurity and the concept that I take with our team here is cybersecurity is not an inhibitor, it's an, an enabler, right? We want to make sure that you are able to do your job, do it securely and protect you. We don't want, you know, it's like the seatbelt in a car. If we can help protect you re facing some fines from HHS or OCR because of a HIPAA breach or something, I'm, I'm down for that. That's part of my role. I see that as an obligation. So anytime, reach out, I'm here. Dennis, that, that's great. And I'm not going to put your email here because I don't want you to be spammed, but Dennis can be easily found on the UT website if you want to go find him. Uh, he's not hidden, hidden at all. So I want to thank you once again. I'm really glad we had this uh, opportunity and I'm going to continue to learn more about uh, cybersecurity and hopefully keep uh, my accounts uh, safe. All right. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you.